0: podcast is brought to you by LMU Munich. So good morning all and uh, welcome we're looking at uh, lecture seven of, uh, of competition and strategy and um, as I already announced last week we're going to have a two-part, uh, two-part lecture today. Um, first part is going to be by me and the second part is going to be by uh, uh, Dr. Yannick, who is uh, a uh, director, is the director for uh, public institutions at Microsoft. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, to that second part as well. Um, let's first start though with um, a few notes on networks and standards and compatibility and so on. Um, and as you sort of know, um, this is part of the second block in this, uh, in, in, this, in this course, so we're going to look at price and product design and one of those is what do you do with a product that has network effects and where standards are, in, are an important question. So as I said, it's kind of a, a shortened version of, um, of what's usually in this, uh, in this part. What's the point of network effects, and why is this why is this an interesting why is this an interesting thing to uh, uh, to notice? So, what we have here is uh, one person, I guess it's Dilbert, and he says, "So look, I've got the first video phone in the uh, in the city, okay?" And so he's all excited because it's something new, it's something exciting, it's something it's a great new technology. And so then he's going to look and say, "Well." now all we have to do is wait for someone else to get a video phone and call us, okay? So obviously, um, a video phone is useful if you have other people using video phones as well. And so there they stand, there they sit and wait, okay? So it's amazing, so he, he, he's sort of sitting there, he's waiting, hoping that uh, eventually someone's going to come and adopt a video phone, and then, finally, you can, uh, uh, you can use it. Now, what's the point here? The point is that getting a new technology is only useful if there's other people using the same technology, if you have network effects. Okay? So that's the, uh, uh, that's the issue that we're going to be looking at here. Um, and I think this actually applies to a lot of different, uh, to a lot of different contexts. So it's, uh, it's a relevant uh, topic, as well as, I think, I would claim, an interesting one. So, let's not go and talk about video phones. Let's take one of the standard examples of what a network good is, um, and let's think of the telephone. Okay? And what we have here are a couple of characteristics that I'm, I would guess that you all agree on um, when thinking about, uh, thinking about telephones. So, first of all, each user needs other users to communicate with. Okay? sort of, sort of obvious. Um, and it's kind of the, the example, it's kind of the idea um, the idea of, uh, of the video phone, okay? So the second part is what uh, Dilbert did not take into account. If no other users have phones, there's no point in getting one, okay? So you wouldn't want to get one if there's no one to call. Third one, um, and that's actually if we go back, third one is also, uh, is also already in this cartoon, it says that telecoms, telecommunication must work on the same standard, or at least it has to be compatible. Okay? So it may not have to be the identical video phone, but it has to be something, um, it has to be uh, compatible. So you have to be able to call from one phone to the other. Very often if you look at, uh, if you look at the market, you'll find that it's difficult to change between operators. So if, you, if I were to ask you, um, how often you typically switch your mobile phone provider or how often you switch your fixed-line provider, you'd probably say not very often. Okay, So there must be something that keeps people from switching providers in these, uh, in these markets. There are only fairly few operators in the market. So if you think of mobile phones, um, there's basically four different network providers. Um, so that's Vodafone O2, E Plus and, uh, and T-Mobile, um, and these are the only ones that have an infrastructure. They are virtual operators, and so on. But there are fairly few operators in the market, so it's kind of like a, a natural oligopoly, if you wish. Um, and infrastructure has to be built in advance. Okay, so it has to be so before you can even connect the first call. It's important that you. Uh, <clears throat> it's important that you have to build the infrastructure, right? So you have to first build a uh, the towers and the connections and so on. Um, you have a have to have a billing system in place, and after that you can start making money and you can start connecting. Right? So you've got these uh, these characteristics, all of which are at least present when we look at uh, when we look at the uh, telephone market and I think it's relevant to many other network markets and so what we can do is we can take these which pretty much apply to uh, or those are tailored towards um, the telephone market and then try to translate them into economic terms and economic characteristics of what uh, what a network market might have okay what characteristics a network market might have so first of all if we have each user needs other people to communicate with, that's an example of positive consumption externalities, right? So you all know from, uh, from micro or from, from basic economics that externalities are effects that are the result of one person's action on someone else's utility, okay? So the positive consumption externalities then simply mean that if I do something Right? It's going to have a positive effect. If I adopt a technology, if I adopt a telephone and so on, it's going to have a positive effect on the utility of others. We said if no other users have phones, then there's no point in getting one. Um, here, what's important is the concept of critical mass. Okay? So if you have very few people adopting one technology, then the chances are that few people are going to continue or are are going to be inclined to uh, adopt that technology. So there's there's an element of critical mass, and that critical mass depends on network size. Telecoms networks have to be compatible. This means that there's a strategic variable that becomes interesting and that becomes important in network markets uh, as compared to others. Complementarities are important. Compatibility is important. And setting standards is important. Okay, so another set of, uh, set of issues that become relevant in network markets but might maybe are not so important in others. There are often switching costs and, uh, and consumers feel locked in to one, san- uh, one particular system. Okay, so if you think of, um, let's say you're thinking of switching your smartphone like from, uh, from one operating system to another operating system, one of the switching costs that you have is that you would have to repurchase all the applications, all the apps that you, uh, that you bought previously. And that creates a sort of switching cost. Okay? Um, we often have, in network markets, we often have asymmetric and very concentrated market structures. right? And if you go back a couple of decades, what you'll see is that many of the network industries that uh, we typically will think of, many of these network industries are actually state monopolies or used to be state monopolies, right, so you have, you have postal services which was considered a, uh, a natural monopoly, you have telephone networks or telecoms networks, you have railroad networks, all of these are network goods and all of these used to be state monopolies, okay, um, and you also, and, and that's what I, uh, that's why I also mentioned you often have asymmetric structures. And what that means is that there's often one very big winner in a network industry and there are some losers, right? In standard markets, in regular markets, what you often see is uh, sort of even market shares or market shares that are kind of distributed depending on the quality of the goods and maybe the pricing. Now, in network markets, what you can see is very similar products actually having very different market shares. So one completely winning out, the other one completely losing and exiting the market. And finally, the fact that you have to build in many industries, in many network industries, you have to build um, infrastructure in advance, means that you often have significant economies of scale in production. So obviously high fixed cost means that uh, you have this high fixed cost at the start and then you can spread it over output, which means that um, you have economies of scale. And so what's interesting is that you have positive consumption externalities on the demand side. So more people mean more usefulness or more utility for future users. And secondly, you have economies of scale in production, which means that more users means lower cost. Okay, so you have this clear tendency that, um, uh, that larger networks are more beneficial and cheaper, and that's what we often, uh, or that's what often generates these asymmetric market structures, these very concentrated market structures. Okay? So, now let's have a look at a number of these characteristics and how they actually pan out, how they, uh, how they materialize in, um, in network industries. So. Network effects, so the idea of positive consumption externalities um, simply means that the utility of using one good increases with the number of other users using it. Okay? And we can split that into two. We can split it into direct and indirect network effects. So if we think of the if we think of direct network effects first, this is about communicating. This is about users communicating with each other. Okay? So Think of the telephone. Okay, you need someone else to communicate, um, which means that the utility increases with the number of possible interaction partners. So in principle, um, if I had all your phone numbers, then there would be 200, uh, 200 uh, people that I could possibly call. Right? And that's going to give me a positive, uh, an extra utility. It's more useful than if I just had one person um, to, uh, uh, to call. And so if we graph that, if we uh, think of the potential connection, uh, connections, the potential interaction partners, what we get is a growth function that's called Metcalfe's Law, or that was uh, initially introduced as Metcalfe's Law. So think of um, uh, this graph here. We have the number of users, so the network size, and we have the number of possible interactions. That's, um, each person being able to communicate with n minus 1, so with everyone else in the network. So if we start with one person, um, we uh, we have no connections. If we add a second person, there's one connection that can be made. If we add each additional person, what we get is this exponential growth path, right? So this means that as you add one more person, if you already have a large network, the potential number of interactions gets even larger. Right? So if we go from, from 9 to 10, we can make 10 additional connections. If we, go from, uh, if we go from 1 to 2, we can make one additional connection. So that's the idea of an exponential growth. But the point is, and I think that's important, uh, the point here is that this is just a number of potential interactions. Right? Even if I have all of your phone numbers, no offense, but we're probably not all going to call right so we're not all going to uh, all going to communicate so the number of potential connections is only an upper limit of who we could call who we could interact with so the real number and that really determines the real utility the real number of, uh, of communication is probably not uh, is not going to go exponentially but it's going to look slightly different and we're gonna get into that in a second now on indirect network effects. So remember, direct network effects depend on direct interaction between, uh, direct interaction between, uh, between users. Indirect network effects depend on the number of complementary goods, okay, which is going to depend on the number of users. How does that work? We well, have a number of users, and you have a market for a complementary good. Okay, we'll have an example in a second, but you have a market for a complementary good and if you're thinking of entering as a, as a producer, as a firm, if you're thinking of entering the complementary market then what's important is the number of potential consumers. Right? So the number of potential consumers determines positively the number of complementary goods provided and the number of complementary goods gives you a positive utility for additional users. So the Number of users affects positively the number of complementary goods. If you have more complementary goods, you're going to have more users, which is going to generate more complementary goods. And more complementary goods is going to attract even more users. Okay? So we have this positive spiral again. But now it doesn't depend on direct interaction. Now it depends on, basically, interaction via the complementary good. Right? So you have some, something complementary that, uh, uh, that's attracted by many users. So what would be an example here? Video games and uh, video game consoles. So what's, uh, what, what's the point here? The more video games there are, the more attractive it's going to be to get a console. Right? So that's, that's kind of the first part. That's the line from here to there. The more video games, the more users. However, the more users there are, the more consumers have purchased a console, the more attractive it is for game developing companies to develop games for a console. That's the feedback from here to there. OK, and therefore, you can have this positive feedback loop um, where there's more users generating more complementary goods, generating more users, and so on and so forth. Okay? These are indirect network effects. And remember, the big difference here Direct depends on direct interaction between consumers. With indirect network effects, they may never meet, right? I may never meet another gamer um, for, a, for a game console, but they both contribute to the market size for potential, uh, potential developers, and that's going to mean that they still connect via the complementary goods market. Okay? Credit cards, um, consumers, and shops. Um, the more consumer, or the more shops there are that carry credit card or that uh, that will accept credit card, the more attractive it's going to be for you to get a credit card, right? And of course, the more consumers are likely to go to your shop, the more sense it makes for you to get a credit card, right? So again, you have this complementary good um, of credit cards that's going to be affected by the number of uh, the number of users. Okay, software. Um, the larger the uh, dispersion or the larger the penetration of a a particular type of smartphone or smartphone operating system, the more attractive it is to develop applications or apps for it. Okay, and there's plenty of other examples, but uh, the important bit here is that we're looking at a composite product, we're looking at a base product and a complementary product, and these two interact, and more complementary products make it more attractive for users. Now, especially if we go back and look at di- and think of direct network effects, direct network effects, remember, were the ones that gave us this exponential growth curve, this Metcalfe's law, so to speak. Um, this, in other way, in, in other words, this was a potentially uh, this was potentially a uh, a function that gave us the utility depending on the number of users, right? And so let's now have a closer look at what the utility function with network effects, what a utility function with network effects might look like. So think of, um, um, think of any type of, uh, of network good. Your utility is going to depend on two things. It's going to depend on the standalone value of a network good. That's what you get. That's the utility you get if you are the only person in the world using a particular product, okay? if you cannot communicate with anyone. So if you, think of the, uh, if you think of a telephone, for example, having the only telephone in the world probably doesn't give you a great deal of utility, a great deal of standalone utility. So this would be close to zero. Okay. On the other hand, it depends on the number of users of the network, that's n, and it depends on the strength of the network effect, that's alpha, okay? And we'll, I'll give you an example in a second, but generically, what this means is that my utility, so utility of myself, which I'm, I'm user i, utility of user i depends on the standalone value I get from the, uh, from the technology, and it's a function of the number of users and the strength of the network effect, okay? So, of course, the strength of the network effect means that um, it, it's kind of like the additional value I get from, additionally, from an additional user that, uh, that switches to my network, or that adopts my network. So here we have an example, um, where the utility would be ai plus n to the power of alpha. Okay. Um, how exactly do we read that? Um, so it's an additive utility function, so we get the standalone utility, which, um, um, which is uh, just a, co- a constant, and then we have this n to the power of alpha, which means that um, this could uh, this has an exponent, so the um, the the network strength or the strength of network effects can be a nonlinear function of n. Okay, and if we just take a i equal to zero, meaning that it's really like a telephone, so you cannot you cannot get any utility from uh, from being the only person with that uh, with that technology. So you depend on some degree of um, where well, you depend on some degree of, uh, of, of interaction for this product. And then if we just use different values of alpha, OK? So different values of alpha correspond to different values of the strength of network effects. Okay, So if we just take alpha equal to 2, this means that the utility then becomes n squared, OK? Meaning that the first user, is going to have a lower additional value for me than the 10th user, okay? So the 10th user, um, if I go from 9 to 10, then my utility is 9 squared is 81, and it's 10 squared, it's 100. So the marginal utility, the marginal extra utility I get from the 10th user would be 19, okay? Whereas the marginal value of the second user would be, um, would be 4 minus 1 would be 3, okay? so um, here we get additional, we get more utility from later users than from earlier users. You know, this is probably the um, this is probably the curve that looks closest to the one that I showed you a couple of slides ago. This is closest to Metcalfe's law. Is this realistic? I'm not so sure. It basically means that the first user, first user gives you hardly any utility, and then if you have I don't know someone in uh, someone in Korea, after one billion um, adoptions of mobile phone, if someone very far away from your network adopts another mobile phone that is supposed to give you a huge additional utility right because he 's a one billion and first consumer, probably less realistic because you 're going to make the connection um, to closer people to you more uh, more intensively and then if someone joins very late, the additional utility probably is fairly small so my expectation would be that uh, alpha equal to 2 is probably not terribly realistic. Okay? What if we take alpha equal to 1? Okay, if we take alpha equal to 1, then it's n to the power of 1, which is simply n. So it becomes a linear function of network size. So it just goes up here, which then tells us that each additional consumer is going to give us the same additional utility. Okay, so I get one more consumer. If that's the second consumer, the additional utility is the same as if I have already 1 billion uh, billion consumers. So that's still a... I mean, that sounds a bit more reasonable than this exponential growth curve, but it still would mean that someone who comes very late in the process still gives me the same additional utility as someone who's very early. Okay, so maybe, again, not, uh, not super realistic. Now, what if we have alpha equal to... 0.5. 0.5. That's basically, that's basically the square root of n. Then, right? So n to the power of one, uh, one half is the square root of n. So this means that the first user gives me the highest additional utility, and if someone is sort of user one million plus one, then the additional utility I get is probably fairly low. And that's probably more realistic, because um, how is the, how is the network going to look like? Right? If I, if I adopt a phone, then um, if so if someone who's very close to me adopts a phone, then the additional utility is very large. If someone who's a bit further away, um, so let's say I, the, if my, uh, I don't know, if my dad gets a phone, then the additional utility is very high. If uh, then my aunt and uncle get a phone, then the utility is somewhat lower because I don't want to communicate with them as frequently as, uh, as with my parents. Um, now, if some other further distant relatives uh, would get a phone, then the additional utility I get is going to be lower still. Okay? So that, that means, or in terms of the intuition, that means that the additional utility from, a, from another consumer actually decreases with the number of, uh, of consumers that we already have. Right? So this means decreasing marginal returns of network size. Okay? So I would argue that this is probably the most realistic Way of thinking about it that we have alpha, which is a value less than one. Okay, so you have decreasing returns. Now, is this the same for all consumers? Again, not necessarily. Um, if you have a pioneer, what does a pioneer do? A pioneer basically loves new technologies. Right? If he loves new technologies, then that means he's not so dependent on the additional or on, on other users using the same technology. Right? So if you're just a, a technology freak or if you're, you're an audiophile and there's a new technology out there, a new audio technology out there, then you don't care so much about what other people do. Um, so you have very high standalone value. And yes, there's some network effects, and yes, you benefit to some extent from, the, uh, um, from additional users, but not so much, okay? So the marginal utility for a pioneer of additional network users is probably not going to be very high. A median uh, median adopter, so that's kind of like a mass market adopter, is probably not going to want to adopt when there are only few people uh, already adopting. Okay, so his utility, when the network is small, when there are few users, is going to be fairly small. But once critical mass is reached, once you get to a point where um, enough users, and enough can be very specific, can be very, very uh, person-specific, but once there are enough users, then his utility really shoots up, okay? So once, once you're here, an additional user is going to give you a great deal of additional utility, okay? And that depends only on network size. So once you're in this area where critical mass is reached, then you get an, a large additional utility from each additional consumer, and then eventually you're going to taper off. And if you're a late adopter, you get up until the point where literally everyone has the new technology, you get very, uh, very little utility, and then finally, if... Pretty much everyone has joined the network. Then finally, you're going to uh, you're going to follow as well, and so that means that you would only get positive utility, or you would only get reasonable utility if literally everyone uses the same technology. Okay, so that's the idea of late adopters here. And that already gives a um, kind of leads us on to the next uh, uh, to the next concept I want to talk about. That's a concept of critical mass. So remember what I meant with this. Critical mass means that we have: if we are below critical mass, no one wants to adopt the technology. If we are at critical mass or above, then everyone wants to adopt the technology. That's very different from a situation as, uh, <clears throat> in, a, in a normal market, right? In a normal market, um, if, let's say, you lower prices by a little bit or if the quality increases by a little bit, you're going to get a few more consumers. Critical mass means that there's this switching point from a complete failure to a complete success. Yeah. So how can we explain that? Well, the adoption of a network technology depends on the observed and the expected network size. And so initially, we'll only have a few people that adopt. Given that only a few people adopt, they get, le- uh, they get fairly little, uh, fairly small utility, and that's more utility means that few others will adopt. However, we might still have a constant inflow of people that adopt for whichever reason. So they just uh, they just end up. They say, "Well, it's just about marginal, but I'm going to go for it anyway. I'm going to adopt it anyway." So eventually, the market size may just increase a little bit, right? So it may increase slowly but surely, slowly but steadily. Uh, we get this uh, increase in, uh, in adopters. And finally, there can be a snowballing effect. So a snowballing effect simply means that you have enough consumers, and enough consumers means more consumers. And uh, instead, of uti- uh, you, uh, instead of utility being below that threshold level, all of a sudden, it's going to be above that threshold level for many, uh, uh, for many consumers. right? So that's what we think of as critical mass. Um, it's easier to reach uh, if you have lower prices, or if you have ni- uh, higher network effects, and we'll see that on the uh, on the next slide. But the point simply here is that you want to reach critical mass because that's very different. I mean, if you think of uh, if you think of this in terms of marketing implications, right? Critical mass is basically a process that helps you sell, that helps you uh, diffuse your product, helps you uh, get, I mean, penetrate your product in the market. Um, Without having to do anything, right? So you don't have to lower prices, you don't have to increase quality. It's basically a process that takes care of itself. Okay, that's, so that's what's attractive to, uh, to managers about critical mass. So let's think of um, um, a practical example. But what's interesting is that criti- the critical mass point is nice to look at in hindsight, right? So if a product has taken off, then you can say, well, surely we. Reached critical mass in January 2010, um, and from then on everything was great. The problem is how to forecast it, right? So how can you how can you forecast it? How can you identify that the product actually that a product actually has critical mass? Okay, and that's a that's a problem that many people have uh, have struggled with. I think someone. Um, once did a study and asked people when, when does your product have critical mass? When do you, does a product in your market reach critical mass? And for whichever reason, this, the magical number seems to be 15%. Okay, So if you have 15% of the market, then the market or then diffusion will take care of itself. Now, of course, I believe that that's... Well, how to put it? That's... that's uh, that's a brave. That's a brave statement, right? So this would say that it's kind of common to every market or to most markets. It's common to every price. It's common to uh, products with different strength of network effects. Every every time, it's 15%. I would argue that that's probably a very gross, a very strong simplification of uh, what critical mass actually is. But let me give you an example of uh, of, a, of a market with critical mass. So here. This is a fax machine in the uh, in the U.S. Okay, um, it was it was launched commercially um, in the 1960s. Um, it was actually as a technology, it existed in the 18 somethings. Okay, so it was uh, it was invented in Germany, um, and um, it uh, it existed for a long time. It was actually there uh, before the widespread uh, use of the phone network, um, but commercialized. Uh, commercialization started in the mid-60s. And so what you see here is that really slow diffusion, right? So you get very slow, very slow growth of the network. So just a few users started using it. Maybe these were large organizations that um, were government organizations that had to fax things, Um, but it really grew very slowly. At some point, and, um, I mean, you can put it here, you can put it there. At some point, the whole thing just started taking off. And so what's interesting about this is that it's it's almost not credible to think of this as the same diffusion process as this one, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of other things we can think of. Prices actually stayed fairly constant. So prices here are not so different from prices here. Quality. I think there was one new generation of, a pro of, of fax machines that came in at some point, but again, that's not. I mean, it wasn't a. It wasn't a jump in quality that uh, that really justifies this different diffusion. So what happened here is that eventually, let's say you had a few large organizations using faxes. Okay. Then you had smaller organizations that said, well, I deal a lot with these, uh, uh, with these large organizations. I should get a fax as well. So they found it useful to, uh, uh, to have a fax, and then eventually um, lots and lots of different firms, lots and uh, lots of different um, enterprises and organizations started using fax machines, and all of a sudden became the, the, the common mode of uh, sending documents, right? So here, this process of critical mass clearly, uh, clearly happened, clearly took off. Again, it was difficult to predict. I mean, if you look at this curve, probably people thought that in 1980 this was going to be the takeoff, right? Um, it wasn't, so it's difficult to, uh, uh, to predict. And just to uh, give you a short example of, uh, of what we tried once um, in, a, in a paper, Um, We looked at mobile phone markets. We looked at global mobile phone markets um, and looked at the diffusion of second-generation mobile telephony in 36 countries. And what did we find? So it's just literally uh, a couple of headline findings. We find that critical mass is not 15% all throughout, right? Critical mass is a function of the installed base, right? So this is the, the percentage of the overall market. It's a function of in the, in the installed base of the price, and in fact, the latter, so price, is, seems more important. Um, uh, seems more important than uh, uh, than the installed base. And what exactly does that mean? It means here that um, it means here that we've got uh, uh, we've got a demand function, and that demand function basically tells us that in this area here, we may get critical mass. Okay, so. Diffusion here would have taken off it would have taken off without any installed base At an average price of 35 cent per minute So this means that if we go below 35 cent then diffusion would jump here So you would get to a penetration of above 50% Um, On the other hand you would reach it at 80 38 cent so that's up here if you already have some um, some installed base Right? So what that means is that you can substitute installed base and prices. Uh, you can substitute installed base and prices, but only to a certain extent. So that means that you can substitute for $0.03 per minute right, by adding 25% or 24% to the installed base. Okay? So you can start up a network from zero. From scratch, if you charge low prices, or if you uh, give away a fairly large number of uh, of products. So if you uh, if you make sure that you have a penetration of twenty four percent, then you can get away with higher prices. Okay. Good. Um, Complementarity, um, complementarity, (coughs) compatibility and standards. So network goods with indirect network effects have to be consumed together with other products, um, which is going to mean that these network goods are complements, so more use of one means more usefulness for the other. Um, And consumers are actually not interested in the individual product, but they're more interested in the systems. Okay? Um, They have to be compatible to do that. Okay, so, of course, uh, Microsoft will know a lot about this. Uh, compatibility is an, important, uh, is an important issue, right? So you have to make sure that, these, um, that the product work together well, say, with the operating system and so on. So just as a few other examples, CDs have to have the same technical specification as CD players. So what was interesting here is that um, before the CD was even launched, there was a big... It's called the Red Book, and the Red Book basically had all the specifications that a CD player and CDs have to follow. Okay? And this has basically been in action, or this has basically been active ever since the 1980s to the present day. CDs are produced, and their CDs have the same specifications so that you can use an old CD with a new CD player and vice versa. Okay? So there might be two competing standards um, evolving at the same time. Um, and that means that it, there's, there's a space for a standards battle, okay? So you could have one of the oldest and, uh, and most standard ones um, are video recorders and cassettes. Um, so you have VHS and Betamax, of course, they were competing very hard against each other. And many people say that what eventually determined the, um, um, what eventually determined the success of VHS over Betamax was the fact that Blockbuster Video Rentals switched from, uh, from having both Betamax and VHS to just carrying VHS, uh, VHS rentals, okay? And that, of course, meant that you had lots of complementary products for one system and not for the other, and that's what determined the success of one. Now, finally, a few words on the market structure in industries, in network industries. Uh, we can think of many, uh, of many different ones. So you have a monopoly, you can have a survival of a small niche player um, or you might just have dominant heterogeneity which simply might say that you've got um, many firms that are still active in the market. Okay? So what are the conditions for a monopoly? Um, if you have strong network effects and you have f- fairly homogeneous tastes, so if most people have the same preferences um, and there are strong network effects, the most sensible outcome, the most uh, expected outcome would be a monopoly. You may have niche survival, um, in which case there's a dominant player in the market and there's some niche firms that still make it or that still just about hang on. This would be referring to situations with medium network effects and fairly high consumer heterogeneity. So if you have some people that are dead set on using one particular product, then no amount of network effects can convince them to to go and switch to the dominant system. Okay. And finally, dominant heterogeneity would come if you have weak network effects and you have higher consumer uh, heterogeneity. Okay. So these are different market, uh, uh, market structures that we can, uh, we can have. So to summarize um, and to then um, move over, um, <clears throat> what do we have? With network effects, the utility from a good increases with the number of consumers using the same product. There are two types of network effects. We can have direct and indirect network effects. Getting critical mass is an important issue in network markets. Um, and network markets tend to have concentrated market structures. And um, what a lot of uh, the talk, uh, the, uh, so the, the guest talk is going to be about, is a question <laughs> of compatibility and standards, because they do play an important role in network markets.